0: So this morning, we are going to discuss the story of the lost or the prodigal son. It's kind of a classic story. A lot of you may uh, be familiar with this story. It's one of the more popular parables that Jesus tells. In order to make sense of any of these stories, really, that Jesus discusses in Luke 15, though, you've got to really understand the audience. We are told that on one hand, there are the tax collectors, right? These are the sinners, the Sabbath breakers. The sexual offenders and the the bank robbers and all the people in their community that were sinning greatly, right? There's one hand, the sinners on the one hand. On the other hand, there are the super righteous Pharisees, the teachers of the law who can do no wrong in their own eyes. They look at all of the sinners and they condemn them. They look down on them. They point their finger at them. And so that they see Jesus interacting with these sinners... They say, I can't believe this man welcomes sinners. I can't believe this man eats with sinners. I can't believe this man, you know, lives within the company of these kind of people. This man calls himself a rabbi. No good rabbi, no good Jew for that matter, spends his time with sinners. It's just not what, good sinner, not what good Jews do. It's not what good rabbis do. See, the Pharisees were the type of Jews who looked around and said, hey, you didn't wash your hands before you ate. Do you know how offensive that is against the Mosaic law? The Pharisees were the kinds of people who who would look at the, the, the sinners and they would say, you, you picked grain on the Sabbath. We need to pick up our stones and we need to stone you to death because that's an offense against the Mosaic law. Or they would pray on the street corner so that everyone could hear, thank you for not making me like that guy. Thank you that I'm not a horrible sinner like that guy. Pharisees were full of pride and they were full of arrogance. They were full of self-righteousness. And they wanted everyone in the world to see how good of people they were. Pharisees didn't see themselves as sinners because they rigorously worked to follow and cross every T and dot every I of the Mosaic law. They looked down and condemned all the people who did not live up to their standard of holiness. So of course they didn't hang out with sinners, right? Of course they didn't hang out with the worldly. Of course they didn't hang out with the prostitutes and the sex offenders and the bank robbers. They didn't hang out with those people. They were above those people. And to address this dichotomy, right, between the two types of people, the sinners on the one hand and the super self-righteous on the other, Jesus begins to tell stories. He says this, Suppose, of you, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Then when she finds it, she recalls. She calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Both these stories are saying the same thing, right? When one acknowledges they are a sinner and turns from their sinful ways, there is great rejoicing in heaven. When someone is lost and they are found, there is great rejoicing in heaven. When someone crosses over from death to life, there is great rejoicing in heaven. Now, sheep are really dumb animals. Some of you may have known this. Uh, for any of you who have ever herded sheep, anybody, anybody ever herded sheep here before? You might know that they're one of the dumbest animals that there are. And so a sheep gets lost by, you know, they're, they're eating uh, a, a patch of grass. And and they're they're eating and they're eating and they look up and they see off in the distance another patch of grass. And they're like, well, that, that looks inviting. I'm going to go, and I'm going to start grazing on that patch of grass. And so they wander over there, and then they're, wa- they're grazing, and they're grazing, and they look up, and they see another patch of grass way off in the distance. I'm going to go, and I'm going to graze on that fresh patch of grass. And before they know it, the, the, the sheep are so far from their home that, that they have no idea where they haven't gotten to. They have no idea where the rest of the flock is. They have no idea where home is. And maybe some of you are feeling like lost sheep this morning. Maybe some of you have wandered from party to party and relationship to relationship and job to job for so long that you've looked up and now you have no idea where home is. And once upon a time in your life, you felt like you had a close relationship with God, but over the course of your life and all these wanderings from patch to patch to job to job to relationship to relationship, you, you have no idea. Where God is, you have no idea where home is. You're, you're looking for life in this fresh patch of grass, but you have no idea where to find it. Maybe some of you are lost sheep this morning. You wonder how you got to this place of despair and loneliness and hopelessness. It's been a lifelong journey towards that spot. You know, a coin gets lost in a house by being dropped and kicked. And it finds its way as it glides underneath the couch and now it lives among the dirt and the dust that lives under there. And maybe some of you this morning feel like you've been dropped and kicked. You know, maybe some of you feel like you're dropped because you now have been diagnosed with cancer or someone you love has been diagnosed with cancer. You feel like you've been kicked when you lose your job. You feel like your life is falling apart all around you, right? Your life is just a mess. Maybe some of you feel like you are in despair and loneliness all alone underneath the couch. You've been dropped and you've been kicked. Will you ever see the light of day again underneath this pain, underneath this couch? Well, the good news is that God pursues. Do you you understand that? If you're feeling like a lost coin, if you're feeling like a lost sheep, you're far away, you're wondering where the light of life is, God pursues you. God does not give up. God is relentless. It doesn't matter how far you have gone from home. It doesn't matter how many patches you have wandered to. It doesn't matter what you are currently grazing on. God, too, is at that patch. God, too, is way off from home, pursuing you, seeking you out, finding you. It doesn't matter how long You have been under the couch all by yourself. It doesn't matter how dark it is under there. It doesn't matter what circumstance you are currently going through. God, too, is there. God, too, will pick you up upon his shoulders, and he will carry you home if you are willing to allow him to pick you up on his shoulders and carry you home. Or maybe you are rebellious this morning. Maybe you look at that whole God thing, and you're saying, man, I don't need that. That's for the weak-minded. That's for the narrow-minded. Narrow I don't need that whole God thing. And so you just toss it away. You're going to go your own way in life. You're going to be just fine. Maybe some of you are rebellious this morning. And so Jesus continues on with his stories. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Luke 15. This is going to be our main text for the morning. If you don't have a Bible, if you need a Bible, please uh, show your hand, and I'll get Tom to hand you a Bible. You're welcome, if you don't have a Bible, to take that home with you, by the way. If you need a Bible at home, I would encourage you to begin reading it. The words will be on the screen if you don't have a text in front of you. Luke 15, starting at verse 11, says this. Once there was a man who had two sons. The younger, the younger son said to the father, Father, give me my share in the property. And so he divided up his livelihood between them. Not many days later, the younger son turned his share into cash. And set off for a country far away where he spent his share in having a riotous good time. When he had spent it all, a severe famine came on that country and he found himself destitute. So he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed his pigs. He He longed to satisfy his hunger with the pods that the pigs were eating. And nobody gave him anything. He came to his senses. Just think, he said to himself. They're all my father's hired hands with plenty to eat, and here am I starving to death. I shall get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I don't deserve to be called your son any longer. Make me like one of your hired hands. And he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and his heart was stirred with love and pity. He ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him. Father, the son began, I I have sinned against heaven and before you. I, I don't deserve to be called your son any longer. But the father said to the servant, hurry, bring the best clothes and put them on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the calf that we fattened up. Kill it and let's have, let's eat and have a party. This son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. The older son was out in the fields. When he came home and got near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on. Your brother's come home, he said, and your father has thrown a great party. He's killed the fattened calf because he's got him back safe and well. He flew into rage and wouldn't go in. Then his father came out and pleaded with him. Look here, he said to his father. I have been slaving for you all these years. I've never disobeyed a single commandment of yours, and you've never gave me a young goat so I could have a party with my friends. But when the son of yours comes home, he's finished gobbling up your livelihood with his whores. You kill the fattened calf for him. My son, he replied, you are always with me. Everything I have belongs to you, but we had to celebrate and be happy. This brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. Father, we do pray that you would open our hearts, you would open our eyes to understand your word this morning. Give me words to speak, Father, that are meaningful and penetrate hearts and minds this morning. May we be changed because of your word. Empower us by your spirit, God, to be changed this morning. In your name we pray these things, amen. And so once there was a man who had two sons. Now I remember when my son Ethan came home from the hospital. He is our five-year-old wearing the twins' hat. He was the cuddliest little kid. He was adorable. He was, he was precious. And throughout the five years of his short-lived life thus far, he has continued to be precious and adorable. He's obedient. He's fun to be around. He's polite. He says thank you and please. He's joyful. When we ask him to do something, he does it. He's easy to be around, right? It's, it's wonderful. He's an easy child to love. For those of you who know Ethan, maybe you can attest to that. He gets a little wild and crazy at times like any five-year-old does, but he's easy to love. He's an easy kid to love. And then there's Luke. <laughs> <laughs> I love Luke. Oh, man, but he's, he's not Ethan. Luke is the kind of kid when uh, when he sees a bag of candy, like uh, during Halloween, right, on the counter, he's going to pull a chair up against the the counter, he's going to climb on top of the counter, and he will shove his face full of candy. He's the kind of kid when he sees the dishwasher open, he will crawl on into the dishwasher and make a little fort in there. He's the kind of kid um, who, when you tell him no, it gives him an extra uh, uh, bounce of ambition, right, to, to go and do what you just told him not to do. But I love Luke. I love Luke, but they're not the same children. Can anybody relate to that? You have two very, very different children, two very, very different boys, they're by no means the same child, right? Everything we adored and loved about Ethan, the way he, he cuddled us and his soft heart, his obedience, Luke is kind of the opposite. I mean, Luke has learned to cuddle a little bit, but he hates it, really. I mean, he, he kind of pushes you away. He would rather be playing with his toys and getting dirty than cuddling up next to you. And the sinful temptation in parenting is to choose favorites. Can anybody relate to that? <laughs> the, the honest ones among us, maybe can relate to that um, but by the grace of God, my compulsion with my boys is that it really doesn't matter which one I, I I quote unquote like the most, right Which one cuddles me more, which one is more obedient. They are my children, they are made in my image. I love them. I love my children unconditionally, even though the compulsion as a parent is to choose favorites. I love them unconditionally. And my forgiveness of them is unconditional, and my pursuit of them is unconditional. And all this means to say is that I love the love I have for my boys. It, it doesn't ebb and flow, right? I, I don't love Luke because he's disobedient. I don't. I, I don't dislove. Oh man, I'm, I'm I'm struggling here. I don't dislike Luke any more because he crawls up onto the counter and eats a handful of candy. I don't love Ethan more because he's obedient and cuddles. My love for my children does not ebb and flow. It does not. It is not conditional upon how obedient they are. I love them because they are my children. I love them because they are made in my image. And so there are two types of people, right, that Jesus is talking to. There's the younger son who is rebellious and crawls up on the kitchen counter and steals all the candy. And there's the older son who is obedient and, 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 and righteous. He does everything right in life. There's two types of people that Jesus is talking to. There's the sinners on the one hand, and there's the self-righteous Pharisees on the other. And so once there was a man who had two sons. And the younger son came to his father and said, give me my rightful share of your property. Which is just another way of basically saying, I wish that you were dead so that I could get what is coming to me once you finally die. Really, that's what the, the younger son is saying here. He's a brat of a child who wants nothing to do with his father. He only wants his father's things. You know, the, the real sad thing about this is that far too many Christians fall into this camp. So many of us want the heaven that is offered to us at the end of life, but we could really care less for Father. We say, Father, God, don't bother me with compassion and mercy. Don't bother me with, with, with uh, forgiveness, And extending grace. Don't bother me with obedience, God. I just want the heaven that you can give me. But the paradise, right, that is void of heaven. I'm sorry, the paradise that we call heaven that is void of God in the end. We really shouldn't call it heaven. We should really call it hell. Right? We want an existence. We want a paradise that is void of God. We we want all of the great rewards that heaven can offer. But we don't want God to be there. That's called hell. Not heaven. And so the, fa- the younger son comes to the father and says, father, I wish you were dead. I don't care about you. I only want what you can give me. And for some crazy reason, the father says, okay, I will divide my property, which was probably mostly land and livestock. I will divide my property and I will give you the one third that is yours. As the younger son, he deserved one-third of the property. Now, the proper response in their culture and day would have been for the father to get out his whooping stick, bring the kid behind the shed in the back, and give him a, you know, a good whooping. And then after that, to, to kick him along the road as he excommunicated from his family. But that's not what this father does. He doesn't lash out in anger and said, how dare you say these things to me? I'm your father. I deserve respect. How dare you say these things? Get out of my household. It's not how the father responds. He divides his property, and he gives one-third of it to his younger son, and he gives the other two-thirds of the property to his older son. The younger son promptly turns around and sells the property, leaving his father and his older brother with the diminished two-thirds of the land. He takes his cash, he leaves town, and he lives a reckless and riotous life. It's kind of like he hopped a plane to Las Vegas, He squandered all of his money on prostitutes and strip clubs and gambling. And eventually, after six months' time, he lost it all. He spends his money, and he is forced to work feeding and eating with pigs. Now, I want you to imagine what you would smell like and what you would look like if you spent all day eating and feeding pigs. If you even walk into a barn full of pigs, you're going to know that it's not going to be pleasant. But you're living among their slop. You're living among their food. And you're so hungry that you begin to eat their food. Imagine what that is like. You are covered in filth. You are covered in slop. Now, the Jews often use the imagery of actual physical filth to describe how sinful one person is. If you remember back to last week when Joshua is being described as filthy before God, right? Satan says, Joshua, his clothes are filthy. Well, his clothes weren't literally filthy, but he was describing how sinful he was. Israel was covered in sin. And plus for the Jews, the pig was the most unclean of all the animals. Jews didn't touch pigs with a 10-foot pole. Jesus is trying to drive in this point that this younger son is as sinful as you can get. I try, I try to imagine the most sinful person that you can imagine, this is the younger son. All right, Whatever picture, image comes into your mind regarding the most sinful person possible, this is the younger son. And he eventually comes to his senses, or maybe a, a different way of putting it is to say, he eventually began to weigh and to calculate his options. He could either stay here in his filth, he could either stay here eating with pigs and living among the pigs, or he could go home. Just think, he said to himself, they're all my father's hired hands with plenty to eat, and here am I starving to death. I shall get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I don't deserve to be called your son any longer. Make me like one of your hired hands Make me like one of your hired hands. Let me work for you to pay off my debt. Let me try to work for you so that I can regain your favor. Do you guys hear that? Let me try to work so that I can regain my position as a son. The the son's motivation in returning home was not to be embraced by grace. He was not expecting that the father would crest the hill and embrace him. That was not his expectation. I'm going to do all I can to work to regain my father's favor. Perhaps if I work hard enough, perhaps if I work long enough hours, perhaps, perhaps if I do enough good things, my father will accept me. I can pay back all the things I've taken from my father. Perhaps if I work hard enough, I will be accepted. Maybe I'll find a place in this house. He wanted to earn his way to his father. Now, how many of us see the filth in our own lives and the sin in our own lives and think, man, if I could just do more, maybe God would accept me. If I could just attend more church services, then I would be accepted by God. If I could just read my Bible more, if I could just pray more, if I could just give more money away, then I would be finally accepted by God. I know some of you have felt that. I know some of you have experienced that. Teaching, perhaps even in former churches. I know some of us have this mentality that perhaps maybe if I work hard enough, then I will be accepted. You need to understand at this point in the story, the Pharisees are listening into this and they're saying, Yes, Jesus. Amen, brother. That's exactly what you need to do. You need to become like us, you need to become self righteous, you need to be good in order to be accepted. And on the other hand, all the sinners are sitting there thinking, man, I've done too many bad things. Uh, My life is a mess. I I did that thing, and there's no way that I can be forgiven of that thing. I've done too many bad things. I'm too bad of a person. How am I ever going to be accepted by the Father? If that's what I need to do to be accepted, how will I ever repay the debt? At this point in the story, right, the son believes that his father's love is conditional. And if the father's love upon his people is conditional, then absolutely you need to earn it. If the son believes that his father's love is conditional, then absolutely his mentality is, I need to go to church more. I need to do more. I need to give more money away. I need to work so that I will be accepted but I love this point of the story, right? The sun crests over the hill and he's covered in pig slop and he's smelling some horrific smell that I cannot even imagine. And he sees this man running to him. That This man is running to him. And, you know, he, he, it looks like his father, but there's no way that a dignified man like his father would ever run in his culture. But it is. His father is running towards him. And, and the son begins to try and spit out all the words that he has come back to try to earn his, his father's love and to earn his father's favor. He wants to work, but his father isn't listening. His father doesn't care. His father isn't interested in making sure that all the criteria have been met. His father isn't interested in, in, in making sure that you know he's going to start being a good son. His father isn't concerned or interested in, in making sure that his son did his penance or that his son went to the confessional booth or that his son is going to be good. He isn't interested in the promise that his son will never do this again. The father is not interested, right? The father embraces his filthy, stinking, sinful son, and he proceeds to clothe him in his own garments, right? The best robe in the house was undoubtedly the father's. He took his own robe and he said, I'm going to clothe you in my own garments. And he does it in such an indignified way, right? Men in this culture, they didn't run. Men in this culture didn't pull up, their dress and run. Men in his culture were stout and they were proud and they were stoic and they didn't show emotion. They didn't show that they were humble. But this father does. The father was not concerned with his own appearance. He didn't care what kind of impression his love for his lost and wayward son was going to show upon the community. And as he embraced his son covered in filth and stink, That filth and that stink rubs off on the Father. I want you to see the cross amongst all this, right? It's the same with God. It's the same with us, right? God embraced the most undignifying position to prove to the world his great love. God took upon himself a cross. It was the most humiliating, undignified, excruciating form of death anybody in their Roman world knew. A cross was deserved for the lowliest slaves in their culture. It was reserved for the worst criminals. And that is the position God takes to prove his love for us. God took our stink and he took our filth upon himself. And as he did so, he clothed us in his own robes. He clothed us in his own righteousness. And that is the gospel, my friends. And so please understand that God did not wait for the younger son to repent. Right? He didn't wait for the younger son to change. He didn't wait for the younger son to become holy before he proved his love for him, before he embraced him. He was still covered in his filth. He was still covered in his stink. And yet God embraces him. He did not wait until they were all washed up from the slot before he embraced us. He did not wait for us to be clean and pure He did not wait for us to become sinless before he embraced us, right? I love Romans 5, 8, one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. It says, God proves his love for us in this. It was while we were still sinners. It was while we were still covered in filth. It was while we were still covered in the slop of sin that God loved us, that Christ died for us. But also Romans 2, 4. Don't you know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You know, we live in a world where forgiveness is a transactional. It's a transaction. Or forgiveness follows repentance. Show me that you are sorrowful and maybe I can forgive you. Show me that you have gone to the confession booth and maybe I can forgive you. Show me that you've done your penance, then I can forgive you. Tell me that you will never do this again, and then I will forgive you. Forgiveness is transactional. But notice that God has already forgiven every sin through his undignified love made known in the cross of Jesus Christ. Every sin you have done, Restoration Church, every sin you have done in the past, every sin you are currently committing, every sin you will commute in the future, It's all been forgiven of it's been forgiven of right when god looks at the world he doesn't see our sin he doesn't see our filth he sees his righteous robes covering us he says the blood of jesus washed over all of that sin it's been forgiven of and it is we who stay stuck in our unforgiveness it's we who stay stuck to those chains right and those stakes that we buried in the ground It is we who look at the slop and the smell and we say, man, I'm not worthy. We make our cages, we chain ourselves to the wall, we imprison ourselves, and we refuse to go into the party. But we have already been embraced. God has already taken our filth and our stink and the smell of it all upon himself. He has already forgiven us. And so, think about this. What if repentance... And a change of heart, which is what repentance means, right? What if repentance was not a condition for forgiveness, but the response that forgiveness necessitates? What if the power to change, right? Which is, again, what repentance is. What if the change of heart, the power to change is only given by the grace of God that has already embraced us? What if repentance and forgiveness is not transactional? Or in other words, you cannot repent until you have experienced God's grace. And so many people think that they will experience God's grace when they repent. Maybe God will look upon me in favor when I stop being such a bad person. Maybe God will embrace me when I stop sinning so much. But it's not that way. You're already loved. You're already forgiven. You are already redeemed. There is no condemnation, my friends, in Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation unless you condemn yourself. You want to make your cage and live in it? That is a choice you make. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, you do not need to earn God's favor, right? You are already forgiven. And when you embrace this and admit this forgiveness, that is when God's love begins to change you. That is when his grace begins to work in your heart and change your heart. When you embrace the forgiveness that is already there. He begins to repent you. He begins to turn you around. He begins to change your heart. He begins to bring the dead in you to life. Now you need to understand that the Pharisees sitting in listening to this, they are now irate. Right? They hate this. No way, Jesus. Good Jews, the righteous people, they need to look like us. You want to get into God's camp? You want to get into God's side of the line? Then you need to get circumcised. You need to start observing the Sabbath. You need to start attending the synagogue. You need to start giving your money away. You need to start looking like a good Jew if you want to be accepted in God's camp. The Pharisees are irate at this. If you want to be a Jew, if you want to have the benefits of being a Jew, then you need to become a Jew. God just doesn't embrace sinners. God just doesn't take on the filthy And the unclean of the people. God embraces the righteous. God embraces the good people. And so Jesus continues the story. There is also the older son. And the older son was out in the field doing what all good kids do. He was working. He was toiling over the land. And he hears this music. And he hears this dancing. And he hears this celebration. He says, "What is the heck is going on over there? And so he goes to find out. And when he gets to the house... He asks a servant what is going on. And he is told that his brother has returned and that his father has thrown him a huge party to celebrate. And guess what? The son, like the Pharisees, are simply irate. The older brother who represents the Pharisees, he calls the father out of the party. And this is such a disrespectful move on his part. To call the, the, the patriarch or the family out of a party? Such a disrespectful move. But he does it. And he begins shouting at him. I have worked, I have toiled, I have slaved, I have always been obedient, I have followed every law, I have always honored the Sabbath, I have been righteous all my life, and yet you have never noticed. You never threw me a party, where's my party for being such a good kid? You have never rewarded me for how good of a person I am. And the father calmly replies, my son, my son, you are always with me. Everything I have belongs to you, but we had to celebrate, and we had to be happy. This brother of yours, he was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. No, the father wasn't lying. The older brother did remain faithful to continue to serve his father, right? He didn't run away like the younger son did. He was always with his father, and the father was right. He had already given his son his inheritance, Everything that the father once owned actually now belongs to the older son. He could have thrown a party whenever he wanted to. It was his goat. He could have thrown a party whenever he wanted to. It was his money to spend. He could have done whatever he wanted with the money. He could have experienced the joys of being an heir whenever he felt like it. But here's the trick, right? Self-righteous people have no reason to celebrate. They keep joy and a reason to celebrate at arm's length, right? The pride of the older son would not allow him to celebrate his younger brother who had come home. Several months ago, my son Ethan, right, the, the obedient, <laughs> lovely son Ethan, uh, he and his brother Luke were getting in some sort of scuffle, and so I put Ethan on the stairs for a time out, and I simply said, Ethan, whenever you are ready to go and apologize to your brother— You can come off the stairs. You can go play once again with your toys. You can go have fun. Whenever you are willing to apologize to your brother, you can go have fun again. You can enter into joy. You can go celebrate life. And for 20 minutes, he sat on the stairs, sulking over the pride in his own heart that he had to go forgive someone. Can you imagine that? For 20 minutes, he said, you know what? For the 20 minutes... I would rather sit here in my pride, I would rather sit here in my hurt, I would rather sit here in my anger than go and play with my toys and celebrate life. And it's like that with the older brother in the story. He was so self-consumed, he was so self-righteous, he was so full of pride. He was a self-made man who had worked hard to achieve what he got. And self-made people have no reason to celebrate the gift of another. Right? They're too self-occupied. They're too focused on what they believe they deserve for all their hard work. Because when you work, you expect a paycheck. And so when that paycheck comes at the end of two weeks, when you finally get that paycheck, you have really no reason to celebrate because it's the byproduct of the 40 hours you put in or the 80 hours you put in. I mean, you can celebrate going out to dinner, maybe. You can celebrate having food again. You can celebrate having a a a paycheck to go buy things. But you earned that money, and so there's no reason to celebrate it. But, you know, come Christmas time, when you get that Christmas bonus, that's a reason to celebrate. It's a gift that's undeserved. You did nothing to earn that, right? It's simply a gift that was given to you, and so there's something to celebrate. It is above, and it is beyond what was deserved, and so you're excited about it. It might seem odd, but joy is the produce, it's the product of depravity. And depravity simply means understanding the depth of your sin. Joy is the product of depravity. Celebration and joy comes when you realize you have no right to be at the party, right? You have absolutely no right to be celebrated. I am a filthy, stinking sinner, and I have no right to be celebrated, and yet this party is for me? That's something to celebrate, my friends. Joy comes when you realize your plight and the terrible state of your sinful heart, and yet God embraces you anyway. When you know you have been rebellious, but by God's embrace, he releases you from the burden and from the guilt. That is something to celebrate. But if in your self-righteousness you don't acknowledge a need for grace, if you don't acknowledge that you have anything to be forgiven of because you've never committed a sin in your life, if you've never acknowledged that, you have no reason to celebrate God's grace. You have no reason to celebrate God's forgiveness because you don't think you need it. And that is the curse of self-righteousness. For as Jesus said so often regarding the Pharisees, their self-consumption, their pride, that is their reward. And they have received it in full. Matthew 5.3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He did not say, Blessed are the self righteous who have done nothing wrong in this world. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize that they are sinful through and through. That the the depth of the sin goes deep into their hearts. They have no spiritual worth, and so they rely solely on the grace of God to give them a new life. Because this new life cannot be earned, it cannot be bought, it cannot be purchased. It cannot be achieved, but it can be embraced because God has embraced us. I want to ask Emily to come forward. She's going to uh, lead us in a time of reflection. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what son you relate more with this morning. Perhaps you are like the younger son who has gone rebellious and you've ran away from god and you've ran away from the grace of god and the love of god for most of your life and you find yourself so far from god now and you're wondering will god ever accept me in my sin i've done too many bad things i've done too many wrong things that that one thing that i did that one time is just like can it be forgiven of Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're the younger son. Maybe you're the older son. Maybe you've been a really, really good Christian your whole life. And you've never done anything wrong. And you look at all the sinners in the world and like, I oh, man, I don't do anything that they do. I must be really good. That was me for uh, most of my Christian life, I'll be honest. And you look at the world and you're like, man, I, I, I don't really need to be forgiven of because I don't go to drinking parties. I don't drink. I don't get drunk. I'm not adulterer. I'm not an adulterer. I don't do anything that the really bad sinners do. I must be pretty good. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're the older son. Maybe you're a lost sheep this morning who's wandered from party to party and job to job and relationship to relationship, and you're wondering, where have I gone? Where is home? Right I'm in despair, I'm, in, I'm lonely and I'm lost. Where will I find hope in this world? Or maybe you're like the lost coin, right? Who got dropped and kicked and, and cancer, or death in a family, or a lost job or some horrible situation that you find yourself in? And you're wondering, will I ever see the light of day out from underneath this couch? You know, this whole passage speaks to how God's love and his embrace transforms sinners. And whether your sin is obvious like the younger son, or whether your sin is concealed like the self-righteous Pharisee, both are equal offenses against the holy God. Both are deserving of death. And yet God's love still embraces both if they are willing to be embraced. And today, my friends, you need God. I need God. We all need God because we all fall into one of these categories. And so let us embrace him together. Let's embrace God together. He is running after us. He's pursuing us. Let us embrace him together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I don't know where the hearts of all the people in this room are this morning. I don't know what life experience they are all going through, but you do. You know, Father, whether we are under the couch wondering if we'll ever see the light of life again. In our pain, God, in our in our frustration, Father, in our hurt, Father, you are there. And you are searching diligently, God, for that lost coin. And when that is found, Father, you rejoice with the angels in heaven. And Father, some of us are are lost because we've wandered away from you for so long. We've, We've abandoned the pursuit of you. And Father, you are running after us. And when you find us, Father, you will lift us up on your shoulders and you will run home and you will celebrate saying, God, my son has been found. My sheep has been found. Let us celebrate. Father, some of us have been rebellious, and we know it. Some of us know that we don't care much for you. Some of us know that we like the ways of the world, and we like the feeling that the world provides. And Father, when we come to our senses, the text says, you will not condemn us, you will not look down on us, you will not point the finger and say, you are not worthy of me, but Father, you will embrace us by your grace. And Father, for the self-righteous Pharisees among us this morning, I pray that you would soften our hearts. I pray that you would help us understand and see the depth of our sin this morning. And that we would enter into the party. That we would celebrate. Because God, because of your great love for us, you sent your one and only Son to die on our behalf, Father, so that whoever would put their trust in him would not be condemned, Father, but that we would have everlasting life. I pray for those who make that decision this morning, Father, to put their trust in you, that you would create a boldness in them to come forward and to receive prayer. And that we would walk through this together, Father. Amen we are going to take part in communion together this is our very first communion at restoration church it's kind of an exciting time it's a time to celebrate what god has done right to celebrate that he in his righteous robes have covered us in our filth and there's <laughs> we look to the cross of, of jesus christ and we see the blood that is shed and that is God clothing us in his righteous robes. He's taking our filth and he's clothing us in his righteous robes. And we have a message to proclaim because of that. We have a message of hope to proclaim. We have a, a message of freedom to proclaim. We have a message of restoration to proclaim. All of us have. Most of us have probably experienced that change in life, right? And so we have a message to proclaim a world.